You're listening to a Fit Plus Love production. Yeah, and, and you know, I think with Enjoy IQ, we have the motto is that you, you know, make every session count. And I think, um, you know, as, as age group athletes, busy professionals, you know, it's really important to get the most out of every session. Get the most bang for your book every session. Don't go wasting sessions. And that's why the, you know, the scientific method of making sure you're doing the right thing at the right time becomes even more important than than what a lot of for a lot of professionals a lot of the time. So, um, and that's why you know, Enjoy IQ, especially with the training squad, that's what we try we try to achieve. That was Dr. Dan Plews. This is Marnie Salop. Thanks for tuning into my podcast, Marnie on the Move. Each week, I will be inviting interesting, innovative movers and shakers to join me on the show and share their story. You will discover and hear from thought leaders, experts, influencers, and entrepreneurs from the worlds of wellness, sports, beauty, fitness, fashion, and more. Marnie on the Move will feature an eclectic mix of people I know, work with, and think are generally doing cool things. On each episode, I sync up with my guests about life, career, and training, and showcase their expertise and story. Hello, welcome, and welcome back to the Marnie on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Marnie Sala. Happy 4th of July weekend. It is an exciting weekend in the world of sports with Challenge Roth Triathlon happening on Sunday and La Tour de France kicking off Friday, July 1st. I'm feeling super inspired to get out on a long bike ride or go for a run. But first, today on the podcast, I am syncing up with Dr. Dan Plews, world-famous elite coach, sports scientist, and physiologist, founder of Endure IQ, co-founder of S-Fuels Bars and Nutrition, and he is also the Ironman Kona age group course world record holder with a time of 8 hours and 24 minutes, winning the overall amateur division by more than 10 minutes in 2018 and placing 22nd overall. Dan has worked closely with athletes who have won more than 30 world and Olympic titles in rowing, kayaking, and triathlon, including pro triathletes Chelsea Riley Sodaro, Pablo Depina Gonzalez, and Jan Van Berkel. Dan was the head of physical performance at Emirates Team New Zealand during the 2021 America's Cup winning campaign and currently leads performance physiology for women's canoe racing in New Zealand. He has gone on more than 50 peer-reviewed publications in applied sports science and exercise physiology. Dan is also the coach for Zwift Triathlon Programming, which I have done and is awesome. Dan and I do a deep dive into training and many important topics he knows well, from heart rate variability, lactate threshold, field and blood tests, his low-carb race-fueling philosophy, altitude and heat training, and so much more. We also talk about his very cool company, Indoor IQ, and the programs that he's offering from one-on-one coaching to weekly group workouts and more. Now, on to my conversation with Dan. So it's so cool to meet you, Dan. I'm so glad that we're connecting right now. No, no, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure pleasure to be here. It's really yeah. good. How did you get into physiology and sports science? Like, how did you go into that direction in your career? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I guess I've been a lifelong endurance athlete. My my dad was a keen a keen endurance athlete. He did cycling. He did triathlons. And you know, when when you when you see your your parents or your parents being fit and active, you kind of get involved. And you know, it started off with my dad was training for marathons. I would you know from about you know nine nine even younger than that seven seven years old. I'd I'd ride my bike next to him when he was doing his marathon training. Then eventually. You know, he'd do triathlons and I'd go out riding with him. And, you know, I guess when you're doing, um, when you're involved in endurance sports so much, you have a lot of questions, right? You have a lot of questions about what's right, how do you train, how do you get the most out of things? And and I just, I always remember, we used to go to this place called Club of Santa. We had a timeshare there when I was younger, which is a, it's, a, it's kind of, my, my friends call it Exercise Island, but basically <laughs> it's a it's a place that's, um place that's like designed for doing sports so lots of the pros will go there yeah. um, i've seen you know, it on lucy that. charles's instagram yeah yeah <laughs> she goes there a lot right so that, that's the place so we had a timeshare there we'd go there once or twice a year we go there pretty much every christmas and one of the things that i did there you could do like various things and one of the things you could do was a fitness test and at the time it was this called a conconi test oh and, yeah and it's a test that yeah it's a it's a classic test since being disproven and not to be that accurate, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I was obsessed with that test for such a long time. Yeah, yeah. It looks at the heart rate deflection point at your anaerobic threshold. But anyway, the, you know, the, this sort of test, it, it really just intrigued me. And, and you know, that was my kind of my first taste of, of science. And, you know, I must have been maybe 11 or 12. And I never, I'll never forget it. And I think that's what um, kind of first sparked my interest in, in that area of measuring and and um, physiology and and sports science, so um, and then you know I went to Loughborough. I was a successful triathlete. I was in the British team. Went to Loughborough University, um, primarily on a scholarship to do triathlon, um, but did a degree and then a master's and then and then a PhD. Yeah, and that PhD was in in New Zealand, which is where I am now. Yeah. And then, so you, so you've been doing, it's kind of like simultaneous for you then, cause you've been doing triathlon and sports your whole life. And then you also like pursued that as a degree and a career. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I was very fortunate that I had, um, I got a lot of scholarships along the way. So, you know, once I, once I had, I mean, during my undergraduate, I was very much involved. I was very much an athlete. You know, I was really trying to had aspirations of being a professional, you know, aspirations of going to the Olympics Never, not that I was ever anywhere near close to that, but um, but my focus once I once I finished my degree, I kind of then re refocused myself into more of my studies a lot more, and you know I did my master's degree at Leeds Leeds University uh, Leeds Leeds Met University, and I had a scholarship with the British Triathlon Federation, which was a coaching scholarship. So I was the assistant coach at Leeds, where Alistair Brownlee was, Jonathan right. Brownlee was, and you know they were juniors at the time. Um, Alistair won, was one of the world junior championships that year that I was there, but, you know, it was the kind of the starting of that, of that, um, of that area. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, then I moved to Singapore. Um, I moved to Singapore as a triathlon coach, working with expats quickly moved into, um, the Singapore sports council where I was purely focusing on, um, physiology, like more sports science. Uh-huh. Um, and then, um, and then I got another scholarship to come over to New Zealand, um, to, to do a PhD. And shortly after I arrived here, I got a job working for um, New Zealand Rowing. So then I was with them for eight years, working as the um, lead physiologist for the New Zealand Rowing Program. Went to London Olympics, went to the Rio Olympics. And um, yeah, the, and that was kind the of... the rowing team? 
With the rowing team, yeah. Yeah, so I spent a lot of... Did you do a lot of the same tests that you do in triathlon, like the sports science, like physiology tests for training? It's all it's all similar, but I guess you spend more focus on different aspects of physiology, right? right? And, you know, I mean, I think one of the key things is when you're looking at, when you go into any new sport, is that you understand the determinants of the event. You know, and like in rowing, there's obviously very many different aspects. You've got, you know, stroke rate, you're dealing with crew boats. Um, it's There's a much, much bigger anaerobic component. Strength and power is a bigger component. So, right. you know, the training and your understanding has to change, right, in to order what's important. Whereas, you know, in rowing, like what you can do over a minute is kind of important. But in an Ironman triathlon, what you can do over a minute doesn't mean anything, right? right? It's like, right. It's, point, it just, it's just pointless. So, um, yeah. I think one of the one of the things that I have in my um, in my toolbox is because I have a a strong area of exercise physiology is I can understand the determinants of any event and I can work in any sport and I have done I've worked in rowing I've worked in still working kayak with the women's kayak which is like 500 meters and 200 meters of kayak so really sprinting I've worked for the um, America's Cup sailing um, you know working with grinders on the on the Emirates Team New Zealand boat so I've done. I've done a lot of things um, in a variety of different sports and I've, I've really enjoyed that. Do any of the principles cross over between the sports, like any of the training principles or science? I mean, we can talk about. I mean, I think the main thing when it comes across all of them is um, consistency. I think, you know, maintaining the consistency in any sport is the most important thing. So with that, especially in some of the sports science, anything that you can do to help establish that and help maintain that, um, whether it, you know, through, through good monitoring, making sure that the athletes are, you know, not doing too much, not doing too little, and not going to get injured, uh, monitoring the training load, monitoring, you know, their recovery. I think all those aspects are kind of there's crossovers to every single sport that you're doing. I mean, that that will always regurgitate and always be the thing that, that comes out. It's just that the way, you know, how many hours and the volume and the type of training across those three sports will always be will always be quite different because it has to be specific to the event right but they all do they all do like periodization training where there's like you know sports specific closer to the events is that yeah yeah most mostly yeah i mean i'm not really a fan of periodized training i think that's a bit of dogma to be honest okay he's ever been proven to do anything but yeah i think What's what what I think is important is what I talked about before. It's not really the periodized training; it's structured training, in that the training is structured towards the event. So there's no point doing um, like doing 10 second um, max sprints if you're doing an Ironman. Right. Right. You know, it's like it's like the training. You have to have be very clear at which training transcends closely to you being good at that event. So doing four by 40 minutes around your aerobic threshold you know it's great for an Ironman not great for rowing so, not really great for yeah. for um, sailing either so it's it, that's what it's more about like speaking of specificity and structured training but I always love training for triathlon and training for running and I've always mm. had a problem kind of doing both because they're very different sports and so mm. it's just something I always think about and then I you know finally it's been beaten into my system that I can either pick one or do them seasonally. Yeah. Basically, you have to focus on the sport that you're training for. It was super exciting for me to see Cameron Wurst as he is a pro cyclist and pro triathlete. Yeah. I mean, obviously, one, number one, he's obviously massively talented. He went, you know, he was a rower before that. He went to the Olympics for lightweight rowing. Yeah. I, you, you, I actually, I met him for the, 
you probably can't he probably can't remember it but i met him at a, a pub in lucerne, lucerne switzerland yeah when there was a roma regatta there back in the must have been you know about maybe 2013 2014 yeah. when he was still rowing but i mean it's an interesting thing because you're not seeing that in swimming and running right you're not yeah. seeing anyone who's competing professionally in swimming and is also competing and, and i think the reason being is it because because cycling is such a closed loop um there's very little technique involved um so you can get away with just having a big big engine and doing well yeah. at both and of course and of course the the specificity and the, the the link the closeness you know long distance cycling to ironman is very close yeah it's very close you know the only difference is you probably you know he will have to do a lot to maintain his his top end speed but yeah. i'm not sure if he's even used for that right yeah. he's used as a workhorse to tow the group he's not expected to do big big sprints and right he's and climbing and leap yeah and climbing and you know he's he's just a domestic and he's he's expected just to do a task that is very similar to what he would do in an Ironman you know so yeah. I think that's where the crossover lies and I was actually interviewed for a, a, um, a magazine that was saying you know, you know how can we close we can get close in cycling but we can't get close in like running for example you know if you look at what the best triathlete would do you compare to a lead Kip, Kipchoge they're nowhere near him right? yeah nowhere near him but the difference being is that the body shape is so much different and the economy becomes such a factor. Yeah. Whereas your running technique and your running economy, like Elude Kipchoge's running economy because of his body size and his makeup is so much better than any triathlete ever will be, which is why he can go so fast. So even if you have someone who's got the same engine as him, who's a triathlete, they're not going to run as fast because of the technical aspects and the running economy that, that he has. Whereas in yeah. cycling, same bike, same you know, you're, you're clipped into the pedals. You've got 360 degrees of rotation. It's all fixed. Yeah. So I think that's where the difference comes point. in. Yeah, no, I mean, mm -hmm. I just, I never thought about that. I mean, I, I wondered about how people can do that, but, um, mm -hmm. and even in my own training, you know, I've been, you know, I've just been doing a lot more cycling and I don't see how it takes away from my triathlon training. Although like I read, you know, I read some of your articles and I know like, you know, if I'm not training for a century, then why am I riding 70, 80 miles on the bike when mm. I'm doing 70.3 triathlon, which I should really just be doing like the focus of that. But I always feel like I just like to ride longer. And that is yeah, why yeah. I am an age yeah. grouper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, riding riding is always fun though, right? It's always getting out with your mates and doing those doing those long rides it's always it's always good I'm, I'm the same as you I just I like it yeah I like it and you know I know there's a time and a place for it but I mean and speaking of like cycling and triathlon I mean you hold the Kona age group course time world record and yeah. I don't want to mess up your time so what was your time uh, I Eight hours, 24. Yeah. So at the moment we, we'll see what happens by the end of the year I know there's a few pretty fast age groupers who are who are gunning for that time, but we'll yeah, see. That's amazing. What was your favorite part of the Kona course? Uh, probably the marathon. I mean, I had the fifth fastest marathon of the day, including pros. Wow. Yeah. I quite enjoyed the marathon part because I felt I felt so good on that. So yeah. yeah. When was it? 2018. But there's only been one Kona since. Yeah. And now there's another yeah. one, right, coming in October. Yeah, there's another one coming. Yeah. So we'll we'll yeah. see. We'll see how things have, have um progressed. I mean, looking at the times from Utah on that hard course, 
um, you know, what, what the pros did was just crazy how much times have gone on. It's difficult to tell how fast the edge groupers are now, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I know that they all got beaten by Daniela Reef, which is kind of your benchmark. You know, I'd expect the when I when I beat when I when I did that time, I crossed the line and I was saying to him, I was training with Terenzo Bazzoni, who's a he's he was a pro, he you know, top ten in Kano. So we were doing a bit of training together. And I said to him before, I said, one of the I just really would like to beat Daniela because I know how good she is. And it's like, you know, that's kind of a and I crossed the line, eight twenty-four, and I was like, "Yeah, there should be nowhere near me with that sort of time." Um, yeah. But she was only like th- three minutes behind me. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, she's crazy. Fast. I mean, that's how good yeah. she is. She's, she's, she's incredible, amazing. absolutely incredible. Yeah, she's amazing, and so. I mean, yeah, some of the times were incredible. Just at yeah. St. George, and it was hot. Yeah, not Kona hot, but yeah, not Kona hot. Is, no, have you been to Kona? Yeah, I was just uh, not for the race. We were just there in April and we went for, we rented bikes at the local bike shop and tried to ride on the Queen yeah. K to Javid. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. We made it almost. We, st- we, we, we started in, where did we start? Like not near where the race is, but in like Waikoloa Village. Technically, it would have been like a 70 mile bike ride out and back. Right. Yeah. We didn't make it that far because we, the wind was. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. it's, I mean, yeah. and everybody was like making fun of us, but you know, at the end of the day, like we live in New York City, like there's no wind here. We don't yeah, get that. Yeah. Where would but, I ever also, ride in that the, kind the, of wind? <laughs> the thing about Kona is, um, there's, I mean, because I, 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 I did quite a lot of training there, and, and the winds there, they, they change direction and they, so you you can very very often if you don't leave very early and this generally gets the age groupers and not the pros because they're a bit in front of it but the winds mm-hmm. will change direction about like mid morning so you can get a headwind out and a headwind back yeah and that happens yeah. often happens very often so um, yeah I jumped so into people, like a local ride yeah. and everybody like they had a hard start time and there was yeah. they said we've got to hustle because this is what happens. <laughs> Always. Yeah, yeah, because the wind changes and gives you a double headwind, which is, which is mentally so so hard. But yeah, it's the humidity in Kona that gets you rather than. I mean, in exercise physiology, we 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 use something called wet bulb globe temperature, okay. which gives you a better idea of exactly how hot it is, because it, it takes into account the temperature and the humidity. And the humidity is a, a major player because that's really affecting your ability to dissipate the heat. Because if you can't evaporate the heat through the sweat, then you get really hot because it's how much metabolic heat you're producing versus your ability to dissipate the heat and when it's so humid the sweat doesn't evaporate and you stay very hot and that's why Kona is will be so much harder than something like Utah even though it's hot because it's so dry you dissipate the heat so much easier so it's, it's in terms of a wet ball glow temperature it's actually not that hot um so yeah in addition to coaching world-renowned pro triathletes Javier Gomez Chelsea Sodaro, Jan Van Berkel, and Pablo DePina, you also have an entire company around coaching and you work with all kinds of athletes, elite athletes, age group athletes called Endure IQ. So when did you start Endure IQ? Um, I started Endure IQ in 2019. Yeah, so it was, it was shortly after I won Kona. Um, one of the main reasons was um, I'm, I'm quite, I was quite well, well renowned for following a lower carbohydrate diet. Yeah, and that's worked very successfully for me. It also, I mean, funnily enough, Matt Kerr, who's part of S Fuels, he won the age group overall in Utah 
he followed the Enjoy IQ protocol. I helped him when he, in his early stages of triathlon. He's a New Zealander. Mm-hmm. Took him through the protocol with his coach. He also follows the, the same protocol. And I believe it is the diet for age group athletes in particular because, because they just can't do the training to upregulate the fat metabolism in the way that they need to. Mm-hmm. So, you know, after after Kona, I had a lot of questions about it. And and I can you can only do so many one-on-ones and help people. So I just built I built I built a course and I talked to my one of my uh, one of my friends and one of my mentors and he was um, Grant his professor Grant Schofield was at the same university as me and he said why don't you just you know just start a company and do it properly so started a company did one course um, then yeah then we did I mean, originally we were just doing educational courses for coaches and athletes but now we have um, we have that and we have a training squad as well which you know and the reason we have that training squad is that. It's um it's a it's a training community that offers um you know the s- s- training with scientific vigor because I believe no matter no matter who you are no matter what your ability even if you're a beginner the scientific method of training still applies to everyone and everyone gets benefit from it so that's kind of um the way that we we run we that's why we, we run the Enjoy IQ and we have the training squad and we have the the courses with you know we've educated a lot of coaches and athletes now so it's been it's been really good yeah i was going through your website and looked at all the different training options and so you also work with athletes as well as you have a bunch of different coaches yeah. and the courses look amazing i mean even if you're not a coach i was just going through some of them um one of the things you talk about which i thought was so fascinating was when it comes to triathlon, there is a hierarchy of long distance triathlon training needs. And so I know you have a course on that, but maybe you can give us like a little bit of an overview of where that comes from and what that means and how it works. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of the overarching philosophy of, of my coaching philosophy and, you know, and the coaching philosophy that I give to the coaches that endure IQ. Um, And the, and it's basically, it's, it's like a pyramid, right? It's like it comes from the Maslow hierarchy of needs, um, and it's the same the same concept. If you don't have certain things in place at the start, you, it, it's not really worth moving up the pyramid and doing those certain things. So, for example, if you're not doing frequency and volume of your training, if you're not doing it, you know, at least ten hours of training a week, in my opinion, there's really very very little need to um, to start doing interval training and tapering. And race specific work and training periodization and and strength you know your strength specific work you know the, the biggest bang for your book is just do more training you know yeah. there that's where you're going to get the most benefit from so um so you know and it, and it and it presents it presents like um you know what's the most important and what's the evidence behind each level so we'll start off at like um tr- training volume and frequency talk about training intensity distribution talk about um high intensity interval training and these are all in order of what i believe are the most important so first you have your you know first make sure your training volume and frequency is there next make sure that the training intensity distribution is right with low intensity and high intensity next make sure that you are including some sort of high intensity interval training in there next make sure that you've got some sort of specific strength in there next make sure that you're doing some work that's specific to the event in terms of um in terms of the actual determinants of that event and then you know then make sure that you've got some structured training and then a taper at the end and that's kind of how we how we how we roll it yeah what is the ideal hours of training do you think 
Yeah. Is that a hard question to answer? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think there's 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 no such thing as ideal. I mean, everyone's different, right? And and all athletes respond differently to some things. I I mean, I I really don't think. I mean, I don't believe um, in all. I think if you want to do well, you got to do work, right? And I don't believe you. I don't believe there's any shortcuts. I don't think you can do well. You can't do well for an Ironman if you want to train less than twelve hours a week. I think. Oh, for for Ironman, yeah, 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 for sure. You can, you can, you can do an Ironman with probably twelve hours of training a week, but you're kidding yourself if you think you're giving yourself the best opportunity to do well. And I believe that you need a minimum of fifteen hours of give yourself fifteen hours of training a week as a minimum, and then you know you can do, but you can do a lot with the right the right training. But you know, unless you you first get fifteen hours in, and then look at how you're getting the specifics in yeah. I mean, when i when i did kona in um in 2018 i did 21 hours of training a week you know for and for that time it's not that's not that much training for that kind of time you know right so yeah, i think that's um, not that much actually yeah because you can you if you're smart around the type of training you're doing you can also you can do pretty well so i don't think it's all You've done some work with Dr. Steven Seiler of 8020 Trainings. Yeah, we do. We, we did, we, he's a colleague of mine, and we, yeah, we do a bit of, we have done some work together. So he's a godfather of, um, he, well, he was actually the one who was the first person to think of the hierarchy of endurance training needs. Yeah. And then I kind of flipped on its head and made it into the, the long-distance triathlon training needs. But no, I do believe polarized training is a thing, but I don't I don't think it's the panacea, and, and I don't think you should stay in it all the time. I think my philosophy is that, um, what we call pyramidal training, which is kind of, it has more in between. So you have low intensity, moderate intensity and high intensity. Okay. Pyramidal has a little bit less high intensity, a little bit more in the moderate intensity, but it's still predominantly a low intensity. Whereas, whereas polarized training is pretty much nothing in the moderate intensity, yeah. low, low intensity and high intensity. And the reason being is that at the end of the day, if you think about the principles of training, the principle of specificity is absolute paramount and because we do ironman triathlon 70.3 um the intensity of that event is moderate intensity it's somewhere between the aerobic threshold and the anaerobic threshold which is why as you progress through your training season and you get become more specific to your your, towards your event you might start quite polarized but you should definitely be shifting to more of a pyramidal type of um type of approach and i the six weeks that you're moving into before your sport, you should be yeah, exactly zone three. six weeks, eight yeah. weeks. I mean, however long, however long you you, oh, you, you generally not, do. You don't do the periodization. Exactly. So interesting. How does that work? I guess because I, you know, I'm just curious. You know, as an athlete, I don't really love eighty twenty. I'm like probably the worst age grouper on the planet. I don't listen to anyone. I want to run fast. I don't want to do slow stuff. I've been doing slow stuff for a long time. I've got the endurance. Yeah, yeah but this is, this is, I mean, what, what you're saying here is classic. It's why people don't actually regulate their intensity. They'll generally fall more into, people will mostly fall into a threshold or pyramidal model. They don't really think about what they're doing. And yeah. the reason yeah. being is it because it, it, it feels good, right? Is because easy, when you're going too easy, you don't feel good because you're not going fast enough. Right. When you're going really, really hard, who wants to go that hard? It's too painful. So you end up in this mid zone, which is where where a lot of age groupers will lie. But I think you do have to be somewhat intentional in what you're doing. And I do believe that some polarized training at the early season is very important for up-regulating your anaerobic capacity, your VO2 max at the high end, 
fat metabolism, basic endurance at the low end before you move into more of the race specific work. Because you'll if you the moment you start doing more race specific work and you start doing reps at your 70.3 pace, you start doing reps at your Ironman pace, you will naturally become more pyramidal in your in your polarized training without even thinking about it because right. it's just where the intensity lies. So if you're if you're purposely polarized in the early season and then you become more specific as you're racing, you will naturally get that way anyway. So all right. That's good advice. I haven't been super serious about my training in a while. So, I mean, yeah. with the pandemic, I was totally training myself, which is like a recipe for disaster. Join the join the community. Join the training squad. That's what I think. It's, it's, it's like the training squad is like, you know, it's, it's not it's not one on one. It's a it's a training group when we have like rolling plans. We give like seven days. So it's basically 14 day rolling plans, northern hemisphere, southern hemisphere hundreds of training phases training plans that you can drop in and for anything that you want to do and we have weekly webinars where you can talk to the coaches and we can help you with everything and it's really good for for someone like yourself who who's a working professional wants to yeah. move things around wants to have some you know we talk about empowering the athletes you want to have your own ability to move things around and take control of your own performance rather than having to rely on a coach all the time and and honestly i mean i don't want to talk bad of online coaches but most of them are doing cookie 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 cutter approaches anyway because they're they're charging a hundred dollars a week have a hundred athletes and i just don't believe that that's a good model you know yeah it's i think that's a it's a hard model to streamline right to have it be efficient as a coach and to manage all those athletes and the one-on-one and all that and i think that they want to charge like a decent amount of money right so i actually downloaded a training plan which i don't follow either so it's fine (laughs) (laughs) I know who I am, but I actually yeah. know who I don't want to be. So that's the thing. I, I do want to get serious. So I did look at the squad and I think it's a great plan for someone like me who needs to like move things around. And then if I can stick to something, then I will reward myself with an actual coach down the road. You don't want to leave the squad because you'll be going better in the squad than you would with most coaches anyway. Yeah. So, even if I say so myself. I'm totally going to check it out. All right, just dropping in here to give a shout out to our partners, Athletic Greens and AG1. I started using AG1 daily a few months ago. I wanted to boost my immunity, improve my gut health, and optimize my endurance sports performance. I was looking for an all-in-one nutritional supplement that was easy to add to my daily wellness routine. AG1 has been game-changing. It has 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food superfoods, and adaptogens. And it's simple to use. Just add one scoop to a cup of water. I drink mine while I'm making my coffee in the morning. AG1 is a small microhabit with big benefits. It's one thing you can do every day to take great care of yourself. It contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals, or artificial anything, and it tastes great. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash Marnie on the move. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash Marnie on the move to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And you, you know, one of the things that you also talk about, you know, beyond your philosophy around coaching is 
why HRV is such an important metric when it comes to analyzing your training adaptation. So maybe talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, well, uh, first and foremost, I think I come with a little bit of bias because <laughs> <laughs> I, I did my PhD in the area of HRV. So, um, so I mean, I obviously am a big fan of it. Um, but I think, um, you know, especially right, for, for pro athletes, and elite athletes, you know, they're always on the, the knife edge, as we call it, of doing too much and doing too little because, you know, they train a lot, right? Yeah. And they're trying to push push the boundaries all the time, doing as much as they can. Um, so it's really – so HRV, can it can do that. So HRV, it's, it has sensor heart rate variability. It's a measure of your autonomic nervous system. So the autonomic nervous system is um, made up of two branches, parasympathetic branch, which is like rest and digest. So as we're sat here now, kind of relaxed. And the sympathetic branch, which is more the fight or flight, the more of a stress response. So if we're more stressed, we get decreases in HRV. If we're kind of more relaxed, we get increases in HRV. So we get increases in the variation between heartbeats. And that's why it can be really good to, um, to understand how people are coping and adapting with training. So if you typically become, um, you're doing a lot of like high intensity training, for example, you're not really recovering from your training, you'll typically see HRV go down over time. Whereas if you're coping quite well and um, you're functionally overreached with the training and you're having a good training block, you'll typically see HRV fee come up. Um, and that's why it can be really important. But for age groupers, it's just as important because it's a global marker of overall stress. So even though if you've had sleepless nights, you've had tough time at the office, um, you know, family trouble, moving house, whatever it might be, it will pop up. And that, that affects your ability to adapt and cope with training, which is why, again, like I think periodized training is just nonsense because the way you adapt is totally dependent on how you are physiologically at that, at that moment in time, emotionally, physiologically so to periodize training and base it on we're going to have a rest period in three weeks is ma is madness because what happens if you're tired in one week or what happens if you're really good in three weeks and you can do another block of training so that's why you can use hrv to guide your training a little bit more intuitively and yeah. um, you know manage things a lot better that's really interesting does that apply to let's say I was traveling for three weeks and I didn't get to do any of my training, right? Really. Yeah. I mean, I, I was moving. I did a run. I did this. I did that. I didn't really get to follow my training program. And it was probably, yeah. uh, you know, and then so for like at least th two of the weeks I was, you know, traveling. And then I came back and I got all my workouts in that were on the schedule that week without doing the ones before. And then I, yeah. and I, and then I, you know, went away again. And so for, I would say a good four weeks of my training closer to a race that I was supposed to be doing next week, I didn't do the training. And so then I got like all panicked about not doing all the training and I decided I wasn't prepared for the race and then I got sick. And so then I was just like, forget it. I'm not doing any of like, it's over. Like that race is not happening. But I was experiencing that. Like, I was like, what is this taper? You know, I have to taper. I understand but at the same time, I haven't done any training. So what am I tapering from? Yeah, well, well what you talk to then is you talk to the exact reason why the, you know, the Endure IQ hierarchy of needs is in place. Because if you're not doing any training, there's no need to do a taper, is there? Which is on the very top of the pyramid. 
So it's the, uh, yeah. it comes a bit back to that. But with the, you know, with the HRV, you could have, you if you were monitoring your HRV, you could have used it at that particular instance to, you would have probably seen HRV go down as you detrained a little bit, because it right. does go down with fitness. And then you you could have used, um, used your HRV and done just low intensity training until you saw it come back towards your normal values and then step on your training again once you're back in the, in the normal in normal values i mean i mean i can share a story with you yeah. like recently we've had um one of my pros is um javier gomez and and he and he just he was training really really well he was going to go to utah um and then three weeks out he got covid yeah um so he yeah. was he was out so and and for him having hrv before during and after has been absolute paramount to his his return to play or return to training because what we did is you know he, he was his hiv was very high he was in very good shape got covid absolutely plummeted and then basically we gave him no training or very very light training until um well actually no training until he tested negative when he tested negative we did like low intensity training only low intensity training we kept it low intensity um just building the volume gradually until his hrv started to creep up again and once his HRV had got back towards what was normal for him, right. that was the point where we stepped on the training properly again. So it kept it really low intensity using the HRV to guide that. Because we know that low intensity training promotes HRV and you adapt better to training when your HRV is higher. So we used, you know, it shows how, it, how what a powerful tool it could be. And if we didn't have that, we would have been just guessing, right? And when loads yeah. of coaches guess, that's fine. And then you also talk about something else that I actually did once was the blood lactate test. Yes. You also wrote a really interesting blog post on blood lactate and like field versus blood lactate threshold, checking those levels. And then also, should you use it? Like what's a better way to use it if you're going to use it to measure like your training intensity? So I did a blood yes. lactate test when I first, like when I had a serious coach for training a couple of years ago, he asked me to do all these tests and it was like the most horrific experience. I was so upset to see how low my, <laughs> how low it was. I thought I was so much better, but yeah, I mean, it's a really eye opening test, but I know that you say that it's kind of like, you know, you really have to do it a lot for it to be efficient. So I mean, lactate system, it's a surrogate marker of intensity, right? Just to give a bit of background in it. And yeah. it has an exponential relationship with with training intensity. So if you have like power on the Y, if you imagine a graph power on the Y on the X axis and um, lactate on the Y axis, it's kind of like exponential and it, it goes up in that manner. And it, you know, it is actually a really good, so the, the blog I wrote, it, I mean, all those blogs, they come out of um, just questions and yeah. I hear, I know I hear people talking on Twitter and I'm just like, oh, please, please, I need to write about this, you know, and yeah. just, you know just to get it out there you know and so 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 that's what it came out came out from and you know there's so much talk the norwegian triathlon i'm not I mean, obviously what they're doing is very very successful so who yeah. am i to who am i i'm not criticizing but they use a lot of lactates right but they're a professional organization right they are professional yeah. training so then age groupers are like i should be using lactate i should be using lactate and it's then suddenly deemed as better than heart rate for just because for one reason. And I just, that's why I wrote about it because I don't really feel it's better than heart rate. I feel that both of them have their place and they can be used at the same time. Um, but doing the tests. So what the way you did your test and the reason you would have done it is because you would have tried to establish your two thresholds, your right. aerobic threshold and anaerobic threshold, which is really, really important. So doing a lactate test to establish those thresholds 
is important because it allows you to prescribe your training more effectively so right. you can make sure that the the adaptations that you're getting are the correct adaptations to the type of training you're doing so endurance training is endurance training threshold training is threshold training so you can and then you can have heart rates and powers associated with that and lactates associated with that right so right. you imagine it just goes up right you have power that's accurate power and heart rate even more accurate power heart rate and lactate even more accurate you know so you have them but all of them then that's that's the best thing but the problem is taking lactates is expensive yeah it's quite hard to do at a high intensity and um i don't really think, feel it's that much better than than heart using heart rate, heart rate at the same time so yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I got that from your article and I just thought it was interesting. And I, I mean, the blood doesn't lie. So we know that. So whatever yeah. your blood says, I, I think it's it was a good test, you know, for me to do. It was definitely eye opening and alarming. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I think that's a good yeah. good place to start because you can only get better. Yeah. yeah. So so when I mean, all of those, all of those tests, they all have the, you know, what we what in science we call them the te technical error of estimate or the technical error of Nickel error and they all have the errors. I mean, those lactate pros, the lactate meters, they'll be about 0.4 error. And then, and also in the user, you know, if you squeeze it too hard, if you get a bit of sweat in the blood sample, they all affect the. So, you know, these are things that you have to consider. So, when we test in the lab, we use ventilation. So, we'll use a metabolic cart and look at VO2, expired VO2, expired VCO2. We'll look at the ventilatory thresholds alongside um heart rate alongside um lactate and we'll try and we'll use all three to establish where the thresholds are because all of them have have the errors and some people just put out noisy data you know and so you kind of want to have a backup a lot of the time especially the more untrained they are so they're very untrained physiology is a lot less stable so it's, it becomes even more important to get a number of measures to kind of get an idea of what's going on what are your thoughts on the field test right because only once but what are your thoughts on garments and vo2 max data good question yeah yeah it's actually it's actually um surprisingly accurate are those 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 those, those um, yeah those estimations so the way the way they work is they just basically Heart rate has a linear relationship. So it's more accurate for cycling than running because of what we talked about before with yeah. the closed loop and the, the economy not coming into play. Um, if you, and what it does is it goes, okay, your max heart rate's here, like 180. At 140 heart rate, you're putting out this much power. Linear relationship, by the time you're at 180 heart rate, you're probably going to be putting out 400 watts. And then it can calculate what your VO2 is based on the amount of power you're doing because it, it looks at your gro normal gross efficiency. And it will calculate. And it's actually, I mean, studies have shown, there's been lots of research done that shows that it's, those estimations are okay. They're reasonably accurate. I mean, it's not, not, I mean, it's an estimation, but it's still not too bad. And then so. you were saying at the beginning of our conversation, the Kokoni tests are out, done. Yeah, yeah. Out. Andy Jones, a physiologist, Andy Jones, he published a paper, uh, must have been about five or six years ago now, that basically said it doesn't really relate to anaerobic threshold. Okay. That much. Good so, to know. Awesome. But no one uses that anymore. It's a very old test, very old school. Are there any new tests that you could do that are like? Oh, well, I mean, now now we, we just, no one uses the Conconi test. I mean, people have talked about there's a new one that's getting a lot of pressure at the moment is a DFA 1 alpha, which looks at heart rate variability during exercise. But it's it's about it's okay i mean it's like 220 minus your age it's another it's another estimation yeah um yeah. but i think you know the, the 
the best way to do it is get in the lab, test it yourself. There's like inside is a company, you know, they do, they're pretty good for, if you can't get in the lab, I think that's a reasonable alternative as well for triathletes who are looking to establish some thresholds. If you, I mean, my preference would be lab first, but I think inside do a pretty good job. If they can't, if you can't get into a lab pretty much. It's called inside. Yeah. Inside. Yeah. 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 Like I N S Y N D. Okay. Inside. Cool. Yeah. And then you also mentioned the low carb diet, which is, you know, how you kind of came to start your company. So maybe talk to me about that because I also am very curious about, uh, you know, just right now I'm in this place with my training and I think I've talked to a lot of people where, you know, post pandemic, like our bodies have just changed so much and everyone's like, doing either super sapiens or they're doing the inside tracker trying to get personalized nutrition and trying to figure out how to optimize their performance when they're racing and training which are obviously very different in terms of how you digest certain carbohydrates proteins fats and so I'd love to hear about your low carb program and how you're doing that and is it different for men and women so, I mean, the low carb, low carb is that we're not really ketogenic for one. Yeah. So there's a bit of a difference. So we don't really follow a ketogenic plan. There. So the whole thing comes about, it comes out of the, you know, it goes back to this determinants of performance, right? It is like what's important for doing well at a long distance triathlon. And one of the most important things for doing well at long distance triathlon is the preservation of what we call endogenous carbohydrate stores. So your internal carbohydrate stores. Um, so you have endogenous, which is what's inside, exogenous, which is the carbohydrate that you'll be drinking or taking in, is those two different things. So preserving the endogenous is really, really important. And the best way that you can do that is, well, there's one or two ways. You can either take in a bucket load of carbohydrate as you're exercising, or you can increase your fat metabolism and preserve it. So, um, and the latter, from a health perspective, yeah. is by far the best way forward. You know, you don't want to be taking in, um, you don't want to be taking in bucket loads of carbohydrates all the time. It's not, especially during training. I mean, during racing, maybe yeah. um, might help. And that's where the whole low carb diet comes from. And and I think, um, you know, people who do Ironman, I always see, I always see three major, major problems that they'll often suffer with. Is one it suffer with is often one is they'll, hit the wall people just bonk you know this term bonking you know yeah. they get to the they get onto the marathon and they literally have to walk the whole thing because they just run out of energy despite the amount of carbohydrates they've taken on number two is they like they have terrible gastrointestinal distress they can't hold down the food puking diarrhea during the race see it all the time and the other is their very very in, unstable body composition so i mean you can see i mean there's so many age group athletes out there who are doing 15, 20 hours a week and they just look like a sedentary normal person because they're taking that many carbohydrates. And right. and and I think um and that's why I mean carb the carbohydrate, the fat switch, it's it makes you 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 put on more weight. You are generally have higher levels of blood glucose all the time, which is known to be an unhealthy. You want low and stable blood glucose, or when I say low between four and five, you know, which most people don't have. And I think and my my view is that I I look at athletes in a holistic manner and 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 when i hear of like pro saying i have peanut butter for, for peanut butter for breakfast and no, i'm sorry chocolate spread for breakfast and doritos for lunch and i just eat as much crap as i want because i'm doing that this much exercise fine that's that's great but i mean it's all right for your performance what about your long-term 
health, right? Is that really yeah. the best way you're going to, is that really the best thing for you or the, is you as a person, especially as an age grouper, age groupers are supposed to be doing this for health. So yeah. to promote eating pies and drinking Coke is crazy to me. You know, yeah. that's just, you've got to, you've got to look at things in a, in a holistic manner, which is why I enjoy IQ. We're, we're about health and performance, yeah. you know, and I think yeah. that's where, that's where the low carb diet can be so beneficial and there's great studies that i'm not saying the low carb diet is perfect for everyone but for most people most people is a significant step forward it's really challenging though to um get into that like optimizing like burning fat as fuel in uh, as an endurance athlete like it's not so easy to make that switch over and also yeah yeah i mean it takes um you know, I think all athletes, they're very good at um, doing things, but they're terrible at not doing things. Yeah. <laughs> so so it's easy for an athlete to say, hey, go out and do a five-hour round. Okay, don't eat this gel. It's like, I'll do this. I'll Don't eat this one gel. Go and do a six-hour ride. I'll take the six-hour ride, thanks. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it's like, it's that, that kind of mentality. But like with, with Endure IQ, with our course LDT 101, which is our, you know, it's the, 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 the application of low carbohydrate performance we teach is that you know they have a three-week what we call cold keto phase where you actually have to go very low in your carbohydrates to try and drive up ketones drive up your fat metabolism and before you kind of go into more of a sweet spot stage which is just lower carbohydrate which can be anywhere between you know 100 to 200 grams but generally around the 130 grams uh, which we find works best for for most people interesting I mean, I've just been, you know, in terms of like, speaking of gels, I've just been kind of not using them anymore. Yeah. I'm moving really far away from them, I think, because just from a, like a gut digestion standpoint, like they just don't work for me anymore. And I don't know if it's like, mm-hmm. and I don't think that they ever worked for me, but I was just using them because I didn't have other options. But, and it's mostly like on the run, right? Because like on the bike, you can actually eat food and take in food yeah. and calories easier i also don't put things in my water i just put like hydration yeah i'm really like dialing into it now and i think a lot of people are a lot of athletes are starting to really rethink their nutrition during training and racing yeah yeah well well as you know we talked about before you know one part of the company s fuels yeah um you know and, and s fuels Fuels, feels you know our motto is right fuel right time yeah and this this idea is that we're not um, we, no, we don't say that you don't need carbohydrates to perform at high intensity or you don't need carbohydrates for racing we have carbohydrate products that we call race plus we have a race plus gel which are which is actually um a citric um it's a um it's a special it's a citric dextrin cyclic dextrin which is a special kind of carbohydrate that's slow releasing it's kind of performs very similar to what these hydrogels do um so we have those carbohydrate products but we also have products that are just purely fat-based products you know for the lower intensity training so you don't need to be taking in the sugars and the gels when you're doing these low intensity trains you can yeah. take in more fat-based so you're still providing yourself with calories which is often a problem when people go into the lower carb approach, they do too much fasted training. They don't eat, you know, they think it's the way to go the way forward and you can go, you can end up with a bit of negative energy balance, which can be a problem. Yeah. But you know, the the, the idea is that we can provide like low carb bars. We have low carb sports drink then for the long endurance based ride. So when I'm doing my long rides, I'll never have any carbohydrates. I'll have no carbohydrates before. 
no carbohydrates during and I'll ride five hours, no problem. I'll just have the train in my bottle. I'll have an SQL's life bar before, which is a low carb bar, totally fine. But then if I'm doing anything that's a bit more 70.3, like higher intensity, then I'll have the race plus in my bottle and I'll be using that. Or, you know, then going on to the run, I might have some a race plus gel just before, you know. Just and this to- is all S-Fuels. This is all the products that you work with. All the S-Fuels, your company. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, yeah. the bars are great. I tried the bars when we yeah, were. Yeah, yeah. they're really great. Yeah, we live off the bars in this house. My, my kids are also, like, big fans. Whenever whenever daddy has a bar, is the my son's like, bar daddy, bar? That's so <laughs> funny. To get a bit... Yeah, they, I tried the blue. There was like a blueberry flavor one, or yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really yeah. That's good. that's not the best flavor. The vanilla one's more better. even. There's just been a lot of discovery around gels in the last like few years. They're just really hard to digest, and then the ratio of like the fructose to glucose is important, and how that affects the gut. Glucose to fructose, the, the you know that's been hammered home for so long by research and scientists because it is good that when you you know, oxidation, you can only oxidize with a pure maltodextrin. You can oxidize about 60 grams per hour. Um, if you do a mixture of fructose and, and glucose, fructose and maltodextrin, you can oxidize 90 grams per hour. But the problem is most people can't, many people, let's say most, many people can't handle fructose as a in their gut. It's not, you know, it's, it's not that great for people when they're, which is why they get a lot of gastrointestinal distress. So um so yeah, that's um, so that 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 raises another problem, and and kind of my 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 philosophy is that what if you train your fat metabolism enough, you, and you're especially as an age gripper who's doing you know a, a lot less total work output than a pro, you yeah. know, like two hundred watts versus three hundred watts, that's a lot less calories required generally. So you can get definitely get away with not having to go for. 120 grams 90 grams per hour which is why i wrote that blog like you know the i said the both sides of the coin because yeah. i felt like you know people talk about 120 grams per hour and it's just if you're an age grouper and you're thinking that that's the best way forward for you you're you know a grams of carbohydrates per hour wow yeah. that's yeah. a lot imagine imagine how sick you'd feel when i when i yeah when i broke the record in kona i took 50 grams of carbohydrates per hour yeah and um, which is very little, and then twenty grams of carbohydrates per hour on the marathon. So I didn't take hardly, I didn't didn't need it, didn't, need, and I took hardly nothing. And by the end of the marathon, I was running this faster than, apart from Patrick Langer who won on that day, I was running faster than anyone. Yeah, I so, learned that the hard way. Like I think I was eating too much and drinking too much. You are also the coach for the Zwift Academy Tri program. I write the programs to to assess the academy so do all the yeah so we're just in the middle of doing that now actually i did the zwift triathlon academy training and loved it okay let's talk heat and altitude i was just in saint george which everybody who listens to this podcast knows because there's 25 episodes that say i was in saint george (laughs) but i mean it was interesting because it was like really hot but it was dry and I wasn't even competing or racing or anything. And I was like drinking so much water and I felt like I felt great though, but it was also, there was also a little altitude, which I mean, for me, it was altitude. I could feel it when I went on my runs. So those are two like hot topics, literally, right? Altitude and heat. So maybe we could talk about from the perspective of altitude why training high to race low is a good idea, but when you are racing high, how you kind of need to rethink your plan. Yeah, I mean, so St. George is at like 500 meters, right? Um, <laughs> That's a lot of altitude for me. 
Yeah, yeah. So it's not, you know, it's not classified, it's not classified as as high altitude. And if you look on the like we can SBO2 saturation curve, which is basically how much um so when you look at how much um, oxygen your red blood cells are carrying, you can you measure it in something called SpO2. So normally we're here, we're like 98% saturated with our red blood cells at sea level. Um, I'm assuming you're at sea level. Yeah, yes. I'm at sea so, level. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'm at sea level. I can see the sea from a window. So I'm definitely at sea level. Um, so, but as we go up, like as you go up and you get higher and higher, um you you know it goes down so you you know at 2000 meters you might be down at 92 right and one of the things that you look at when you're looking at adaptation and you're having athletes at altitude is that you see how they'll go there originally and it'll the next morning it'll be down in the 90s but as they get better it kind of t- goes closer to normal levels and we use that a lot to see wh- how they're coping with the training and whether you can step on the intensity and step on the volume because you don't want to get someone to an altitude training camp and they're at 90, they're at 90 SpO2, for example, and they stay there and you just build the training and then you need to build it in time with how they're adapting to the altitude. So that's a, that's a sign up. But the reason I'm saying this is because at 500 meters, you pretty much be at normal. You would not, you won't have any, but it's, but people regardless, they still feel that there is a bit of a difference. And um, so you do kind of have to get used to it a little bit. Um, and of course, altitude training has been shown to, you know, especially specifically the lift high, train low, um, is good for just general overall performance. And when with uh, with Javier and um, who and even and Jan van Berkel, who were both did Utah, we did specific altitude training blocks in preparation for that event. And we would have done that anyway, regardless if it was at sea level or not, because it's such a, a benefit. But I mean, Javier felt like he goes. He said to me, "I feel like I feel like I can feel 500 meters." So, you know, we did something about it. And, you know, some of the specific adaptations are hematological, so increasing red blood cell count. But, yeah, there's also improvements in other things like economy and other other blood markers as well. So, so I've always wanted to do like an altitude training camp. And- yeah, well, well, typically with, with that, I mean, I don't believe there are responders and non-responders. The people yeah. who don't respond, they just end up doing, they go there and train too much in accordance to how they adapt to the training. So some people, so a, so deemed a responder would be somebody who who adapts very well to the altitude, and you increase the training. But I just think the people who don't respond are people who are slower to respond to the altitude, and they do the wrong training. But everyone will respond with the right mix, right? right. With making right. sure you get the timing of how you're adapting to the altitude and how you're increasing the training there. That that's um, that's the real key. So you got to you got to know what you're doing. You know, you yeah. have to. Um, yeah. You know, we're we're very specific with what we do. You know, we start the first week where we'll just do low intensity and sprint work. So stuff that doesn't require a lot of oxygen. Then the next week we'll do, um, if they've adapted and the SpO2 has kind of gone up with their training, um, we'll do things where we'll go kind of back to longer intervals, but we'll have a lot more recovery. Yeah, and we'll we'll reduce the overall work. So generally it's about 5% for every 1,000 meters. We generally take it down by, um, but it depends on who. Uh, so what should we know about tr- racing in the heat and training in the heat? So when it gets really hot, one of the things is that, okay, don't avoid, don't avoid sodium. I think that's a good thing. Like salt your foods, have it in your sports drinks, you know, don't, don't try and purposely avoid it. I think that's the main take home. Um, when it comes to hydration, like weighing yourself pre post exercise, seeing how much fluid you lost, total waste of time. Okay. Don't bother yeah. doing that either. <laughs> 
<laughs> You're waiting for that one. You're like, what's no, well, I, I've heard that before, but like, yeah, yeah, I yeah, think total waste yeah. because yeah. because we're, we're very, um, one of the main limiting factors is your rate of gastric absorption. So you can't, most people can't really absorb more fluid than 1.3 liters an hour. So what I say to people is that when you're doing a race like um, Kona, yeah. try and get to around one liter per hour during the bite session, because you want to start the run as hydrated as you possibly can. So as close to your, what we call you hydrated as you possibly can be, right? It's a normal hydration. Yeah. Um, and then on the run, you will have naturally what we call voluntary dehydration. So you will lose body weight. That's a good thing because you're getting, you know, you're, you're getting a bit lighter. You're, and it's what we're meant to do as mammals. And the reason why we likely remove salt in our sweat is because we're trying to reduce the amount of sodium in the blood. So therefore maintaining a more equal serum osmolarity, which delays the first response. And that means you can keep on going. And that's why we're, so adaptive as mammals and this is one of our big evolutionary advantages over other mammals is that we can do these sorts of things so we it's, so. yeah so we should be sweating and we should be that should be what's going on yeah exactly exactly yeah this is really awesome this has been such a great conversation and i i obviously like highly recommend that all of my listeners check out your website endure iq and you know while you're coaching the olympians and pros and best of class athletes from around the world you are smart enough and nice enough <laughs> to create an entire company around coaching elite and age group athletes and offering programs and there's also a lot you have a lot of coaches that are on your website that you do one-on-one -on -one coaching and there's a variety of different options for all athletes yeah and, and then, you know i think with enjoy our queue we have the motto is that you, you know make every session count yeah and i think um you know, as, as age group athletes, busy professionals, you know, it's really important to get the most out of every session, get the most bang for your book every session. Don't go wasting sessions. And that's why the, you know, the scientific method and making sure you're doing the right thing at the right time becomes even more important than, than what a lot of, for a lot of professionals, a lot of the time. So, um, and that's why, you know, enjoy IQ with, especially with the training squad, that's what we try and we try to achieve. And, and what's your yeah. next race? Oh, I haven't really got one at the moment. I'm fit enough to race. I will probably do a race, hopefully towards the end of the year. I think. So yeah, we'll. we'll that would be um, your next, like an, an Ironman or. Yeah, I think I think I I, I want to do a fast a, a fast Ironman like on a faster course because I've never really done a fast course. Um, so and you're New Zealand. Yeah. 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 So New Zealand is not a fast course, so, so I'll go somewhere else in the world, um, and try and find a try and find a fast course and do a fast time and then once i've done that i think i think that'll be it for my um racing to be honest and i think i'll just focus on the um business and helping others what so. do you love about the sport oh yeah i love i mean i would never i will never stop swimming cycling and running but i don't think but i think you know to compete at that level you you do have to do an amount that's probably above health benefits you yeah. know i think yeah. there's um and i think i just do i do i do i put myself more into a I mean, obviously, I'll still work very close in triathlon. And I'll still be massively involved because I'll be coaching. Yeah, I mean, you work with all the top athletes. Yeah, I think there's a difference between doing exercise and wellness from a pure health perspective, yeah. and then Ironman triathlon. I think Ironman triathlon has it is good, and it's there's many benefits in terms of community and whatnot. But I think I do a little bit less training. I still do swim, cycling, running, and I do a lot more strength training. That's this it. was awesome. I'm so grateful for 
all of the information and thank you for for being on the podcast no thanks for having me on it's been great to nice to chat thank you thanks again for tuning in to marnie on the move if you like what you hear leave us a five-star review in apple podcasts follow us on social at marnie on the move for facebook and instagram and marnie salop on twitter Head over to our website, MarnieOnTheMove.com, for more info on this episode, links in the show notes, and of course, sign up for our quarterly newsletter, The Download, to get updates, deals, giveaways, and information on future events for 2019. I want to hear from you. Email me, MarnieOnTheMove1 at gmail.com, and let me know what you're enjoying, what you want to hear more of. If you have questions for our guests, just reach out. 